The Insurance Brokers Podcast is brought to you by Sarah Myerskoff of Boston Tullis. Welcome to the Insurance Brokers Podcast with your host, Sarah Myerskoff. This business podcast is for ambitious brokers determined to grow their business. Our guests are highly experienced industry experts and innovators. This is the place to leverage their success, learn how to break through barriers to growth, and discover a community of support and ideas whilst growing your business. Good morning, Steve. I'm so grateful to have you here on the Insurance Brokers Podcast. I know you're a very busy man and lots going on at Bieber at the moment. So I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here, Sarah. Thanks, thanks for the invite. So I think uh, one of my previous podcasts, um, we started talking a little bit about Bieber and the importance of Bieber. Uh, to the independent broker and I know that sort of 80% of your uh, membership base are uh, sort of smaller independent brokers so uh, that really is the topic for today Um, so I wonder if I can not that you need an introduction because I'm sure everybody knows who you are but I wonder if you want to give us a bit of background about who is Steve. Steve has been at Bieber since the spring of 20. 2004, I was recruited from within the FCA where I'd spent a couple of years. I'd spent a couple of years prior to that with the General Insurance Standards Council. But before that, just 21 years with the Orion Insurance Company, a broker-only insurer. Um, So I joined Bieber to to head up their compliance operation um, some nine months before FCA, or FSA as it was then, Sarah, (laughs) launched. I fulfilled the compliance role until the spring of 2013 when I was uh, promoted into the chief exec's chair. So I've been doing the chief exec role now for just over eight years. That's incredible. And what have you seen in the last eight years in terms of market changes, in terms of Bieber's development and, and uh, I suppose the marketplace in terms of how many independent brokers there are still left out there? Well, the market has changed quite significantly. What we never had prior to the FCA or FSA as it was back in 2005, was a definitive list of how many brokers there were. Uh, and of course, the FSA doesn't make it any easier because the word broker doesn't appear in FS, FSA or FCA rules or the glossary. They, they, they regulate by activity type, not by what the firm is. So we've, we've never had a, a definitive handle on how many of us there are, but we, we all have a sense that there aren't as many of us now as there were back in 2004 to 2005. But I think what it, what it has done from a regulatory point of view is sharpened firms up. I think firms are now much clearer in terms of their own processes and procedures. Things are done um, deliberately rather than, you might say, by osmosis. Um, so we, we have that. We have a regulatory architecture that is uh, overburdensome. The regulator was built in, in the year 2000 under the Labour government to regulate the, uh, the major institutions. And here we are you know, 20 years on from that piece of legislation and the architecture of the regulator is still designed around the institutions. They still haven't got to grips with how to appropriately and proportionately regulate a plethora of smaller insurance brokers, mortgage brokers, IFAs, etc. So we're all in this very large sausage machine, and we're faced with a regulatory architecture that is, as I say, overburdensome. You can compare this to what um, our peer brokers are facing around the rest of the rest of Europe. They have a, a much lighter touch, and we're, 
we're not calling for a light touch. What we want is the right touch. We want, we want a more proportionate approach to regulation. I'm sure we'll come on to some regulatory type questions further on in this podcast, Sarah. Yeah, absolutely. What, um, if you went back into the FCA now and you were tasked with, with, with making that the right touch, what would it look like for you? That's a very difficult question because the, the regulator's hands are somewhat tied by the legislation that the London mm. Um I don't think we can go back to a, a plethora of different regulators, which is what the, uh, the Labour government were faced with back in the late 1990s when they pulled it all together into what they called the super regulator. Mm. It's, you're talking to an ex-immigration lawyer, so regulation and uh, 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 legal changes and legislation is something that is was played a big part of my uh, my past life, and it, it's quite a difficult one to to answer because of how interrelated everything is. Uh, you, you, exactly right, and um, there's been some what you might call rather naive criticism of Europe for putting these rules upon us. It's not the case. The UK has has a absolute thirst for regulation and policing regulations that's pretty well unequaled anywhere in Europe. There's an analogy we use of, and I'm sure I haven't got the, the title of this directive correctly, but it was, you might call it the, the Clean Beaches Directive, where European countries had to go and inspect their beaches and put blue flags on them if they met the standards. When you contrast the UK and the French approach, the UK issued a whole set of rules and appointed a whole load of inspectors. The French just produced blue flags. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that we take exactly the French route, but it does demonstrate the, the different approach and the, the almost, almost overzealous approach that the UK has to regulation. Tip, tip, typified by Treasury's decision back in 2001 to simply put the responsibility for the implementation of the Insurance Distribution Directive or the Insurance Mediation Directive, as it was back in 2001. I think they took a a 30-second decision, I will just give that to the FSA. Whereas the, whereas the Germans got criticised for implementing that directive late, so what the Germans did was take a good look around at what the regulatory architecture, what they had, what they thought they needed, and built something that was much more appropriate to the sort of firms that were going to be caught by it. And that, I think, would have been, would have been then a better, a better approach. Some of the, the problem is, in the sort of fast... I don't want to call it a knee-jerk approach, but almost a knee-jerk approach to, to, to crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's. Unpicking that years later actually takes so much more resource and pain than taking that bit of time at the beginning. It does, Sarah, and uh, we, we, we often hear from politicians, OK, well, tell us what rules you would like disapplied. Well, it's not as simple as that. It's the overall, it's the overall approach. It's the overall approach that needs to be looked at again. Mm. We work quite closely with a company called RR Compliance uh, and they, funnily enough, are compliance specialists and, and Roland, who's the MD, sits on the, um, I think it's the APCC. Um, apologies, Roland, if you're listening and I got that wrong. Uh, and, and it's some of the, you know, it's sort of, um, they're often getting together and, and people coming in, putting their two, two pence in about what needs to change and just understanding what, what the rules are and what, what needs to come out of it and I don't think the media help when they sort of jump in with their hype on and, and sort of skewed perceptions on some of the um, some of the changes or obviously the the BI stuff that's been in the news 
uh, uh, a lot over the last 18 months. And I think they can sort of add to that distorted view, like you said, the, the idea that the Europeans have imposed this on us. Yeah, that's right. Mm, it's crazy. So from uh, an independent broker's perspective, do you guys provide support and advice in terms of understanding all the regulatory changes and compliance, or is that something that they go elsewhere for? Yeah, we are. We're very active in the compliance space. David Sparks, who's an ex-FSA yeah. supervisor, um, heads the compliance activities at Viva. We have, uh, since my time in, in, in that seat, run regional compliance forums all around the UK. And that they're great on a number of fronts. It gives, it gives compliance staff who's, who, who are often quite isolated within their business, often referred to as the, as the business prevention officer, rather, uh, rather cruelly. It, give, it gives them a chance to, to mix with fellow compliance officers in a non-competitive environment and, and, and share approaches. So, you know, we tackle it this way. Well, we've done it that way. Well, there's a good bit of learning there. More importantly, it does give firms the chance to hear what's coming down the tracks. And that's what makes us different to compliance consultants. Compliance consultants are excellent at applying the current rules. What we have access to is what's coming down the tracks. Um, we, we work very, very hard and very closely within the European structure in our time before Brexit. So we were well aware of what was coming down the tracks and more, more importantly, why was it coming down the tracks? And we have a, a very good and open relationship with the the FCA. So we're able to take FCA people out and around the country on our compliance forums so they can explain to our independent brokers what's coming and gives, it gives our independent brokers a chance to challenge them and say, well, if you do that, it means this. And that putting that into the mix when you're formulating policy and, in, and for us, formulating responses to FCA proposals is really, really helpful for all parties. Absolutely. And I, <clears throat> excuse me, I was having a look at your uh, sort of the, the spread of events that you guys offer from webinars. Well, mainly webinars at the moment uh, uh, on all different topics. And I saw a couple, you know, knowledge shares in different regions. And I think that's really important. And one of the um, podcasts uh, I did recently um, I'm trying to think who it was with, um, was talking about um, independent brokers and actually if they were to band together more and have a more collaborative approach, which, you know, really is facilitated by what you guys are doing in these regional knowledge uh, uh, sharing sessions, then that would be overall a much more beneficial sort of environment to, to progress over the next three, five years. Well, that's what Viva's main aim in life is, is to be. Now, our members are a very broad church of firms. They range from the very largest firms, so the Yamashis, Willis's and Aeons, through to most of the very well-known large personal lines brands, and then into a plethora of smaller independent brokers all up and down the country. 80% of our members have 20 or less staff, so we are well-placed in the independent broker space. And that's reflected within our governance structure. We have five advisory boards that reflect that diversity of, of, of membership. And one of those is our smaller an SME broker advisory board. It, each of our five advisory boards has a chair and the, those chairs sit on the main Beaver board. But to reflect the fact that the smaller brokers are the majority by headcount, both the chair and the deputy chair of those of that advisory board sit on the main board. So our SME broker board is chaired by Paul Dixon from um, 
the Watford area, and Karen Weir from the North East is his deputy. Both Paul and Karen sit on the main Bieber board. So independent independent brokers, small independent brokers, have a really very large um, voice within the association's governance. I think that's um, really interesting. I, I, had a, I did a podcast with somebody else, and we were talking about the independent brokers' voice, um, and Bieber did... Uh, crop up in that conversation and I think the conversation was generally around what more could Bieber be doing um, and the suggestion was that it's the bigger brokers on the, the Bieber panel which obviously is not is not uh, the case which is fabulous what um, what and forgive me for my ignorance although it, I, I do know because I've done the research but I want you to tell me um, what what are the main areas that you support independent brokers with and how does that manifest itself and also is it an opt-in do you, do you do they need to engage with Bieber or is Bieber sort of front and face going hello let me help you with this how how, how do you get around that um there, there has to be an element of put you know, put your hand up and come and come and participate um it's a bit it's a bit like the kids going swimming on a on a saturday you can either be in the water swimming up and down the pool or you can be sat on the side with your just dipping your toes in and we, we do say to people, look, don't just join, join in. So we have uh, 12 regional committees and brokers around the country can, can, can engage with us uh, regionally on that basis. We, we take the compliance forums around each of the regions, albeit they're virtual this year, but uh, they have been physical in the past and they will be physical again in the future. So come and join in with those. Um, in terms of the support that we give, we've spoken about regulation, technical support so my technical team have never been busier throughout the um the pandemic they were fielding questions on on bi cover on the hard market on brokers own ei there's a there's a wealth of expertise that we have within the business or that we have access to from within the business uh, we have a standards committee that produce a good practice guides that are all over our, our website we produce a, a weekly email that tells members exactly what we're doing and how to interact with us we run the biggest broking conference in the world now um there's a there's a variety of touch points there's a variety of touch points. plus we have um area managers that are available around the country that brokers can tap can tap into um the, the, world, the world that we're in means you need to reach out. Yeah. Do you, some of the best advice I got when I started um, Boston Tullis was from Kevin Hancock. And he said to me, you've got to get involved and give back and you will find that opportunities present themselves. Um, but you've got to get stuck in, into the community. And, and I, um, shortly after that, joined the... Um, Cambridge uh, CII as their education secretary and this year I'm, I'm doing the, the deputy president uh, and education secretary role and it's been phenomenal the people I've met the in, the sort of engagement even through COVID um, is has been so incredible for me and it's on the agenda eventually for us to um, to uh, join uh, Bieber uh, so I, I think it's a, a fabulous thing to do and also quite a lot of fun yeah well, the, the world the world that we're in is there's, there's a whole raft of knowledge there that you can go and seek so the internet for example you have to go on it to find it but when you when you are on it you do find it and it's a little bit like that with life now you, if, as, as you so eloquently said if you, if you reach out it's there for you 
Absolutely. Um, absolutely. So where do you see, um, where do you see, okay, no, different question. Do you offer uh, sales training, marketing support, that type of support to, to brokers? Um, we run a whole series of webinars, as you alluded to earlier, about that they are on a variety of topics. Some of them are, are of that ilk, others are more, more technical by their nature. Um, the, the reason I ask, obviously, video production mar marketing is what we do, um, and we do that for brokers and insurers. And lots of the conversations I've been having are around um, the almost cliche saying of, the, you know, buyer behavior's changing, the sales cycle's changing, we're going into a hardening market, you've got to change what you're doing. If you do what you've always done, you'll get where you've always got. That's not the case anymore, blah, blah, blah. And all, the, all of this stuff, that the sort of rhetoric that probably hasn't changed that much in the last 20 years, and yet we're still here, still plodding along, doing what we're doing. But, but some of the conversations I'm having now is that COVID has actually turned that on its head. Um, and, and, and not just COVID, um, the market was changing prior to COVID and COVID just hasn't helped. Um, so, so what I'm interested in, I suppose, is what you see the next five years being and, and what, what brokers should be doing. Is there actually coming a change in terms of having to be more digital, digitally present? What do you think about that? It's all very good me saying it. That's what I do for a job. So you're more independent. What do you think? Well, I, I think you're right to suggest that COVID is going to make for a number of changes. It's making changes to the way in which people work and the way people live their lives and the way people view that balance between working and living. What we're seeing from the COVID BI cases is um, a, a clear example of customers not really understanding what it is that they're buying. And there, therein lies a real opportunity for independent brokers to be that point of, let's explain to you what it is that you're buying. Let's work out exactly what you need and what you want. Let's see if we can better align those wants and needs to what might have happened in the past. So a, a real opportunity there in the advice space for independent brokers, I think. I think we will see a move to, to clear, clearer language being used. I think we all recognize that that's um, fundamentally important. We've seen during the, the lockdown a, a dramatic, dramatic move to online purchasing. You can't, you can't move in the streets now for DPD and Hermes vans delivering things all over the place. And don't get started on Amazon and Sainsbury's. Um, <laughs> And, and, and therein, therein lies a, a real dilemma, doesn't it? Because people have dramatically changed their buying habits. And if they can change their buying habits from going to Sainsbury's once a week to having it delivered once a week, they'll expect the same on their financial services. I've spoken to several larger brokers in the personal line space who tell me that that move back in March 2020 from having a call centers to having everybody working at home with laptops was not part of a longer term digital strategy. It was a reaction to what, what was going, going on. So they're now looking at it and saying, do we want to get back onto the original path we had for our digital strategy or are we going to move our digital strategy from 
where we have morphed to into, into something else. And they're doing that at a time when customers are now starting to demand digital service because that's what they used to with everything else that they're, they're getting. So we have, we have that challenge. Um, but look, there's always going to be a role for advice. We, we, we sell peace of mind and, and there will always be a constituent that wants the peace of mind from a personal perspective rather than a digital perspective. So there's always going to be that, that balance. And that's uh, what, what, what I think a lot of independent brokers will be wrestling with over the next two or three years. Yeah. And it's not an easy wrestle. Um, it's not an easy wrestle at all. Some of the, some, some of the things that we do are around, um, as you know, podcasting, because that's what we're doing right now. Um, and, and sort of the videos that you can take to go, <coughs> excuse me, with that and tiny little info clips that could be of value to, uh, insurance brokers in this case. Um, and we've got a couple of clients that are doing it very, <coughs> very effectively in their own niches. So they will interview their specific niche, uh, whoever that might be, uh, and then chop up the videos to provide sort of personal video advice through an email campaign. And we're seeing quite a lot of good um, good response from that. But there is this whole issue of turning that interest into an opportunity. And that, that can only really be done in a face, uh, I say face-to-face, -face, I'm meaning virtual face-to-face -face as well now because of, of the world we live in. And sometimes I think that's quite a, a difficult bridge to gap, gap to bridge, bridge to gap. You know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> gap, to, gap to bridge, I think. <laughs> yeah, look, look, you're right. Certainly in the um, anything beyond micro SME, yeah, it's difficult to get two risks that are identical. So you, personal interaction, you, you've got to make sure you're putting a square peg in a square hole. Mm, absolutely. What do you the think way, about... <clears throat> sorry, I was, going to, I was going to say the only way you can establish whether it is a square peg is to... Um, Make sure it's a square peg, and rather rather rely on a, a, a digital solution to find that for you, as, as you alluded to there, Sarah. I think the, the personal interaction to establish that is probably still the best way. Yeah, I think so, and I think what's coming is sort of a hybrid approach. That and and that for me is where sales and marketing integrate. That's that's it. And when when you've got a properly integrated strategy, and you've decided this is who I'm going, this is who I want my clients to be this pool of prospects this is what I know they need to know so I'm going to start telling them that and then I'm going to phone them and then I'm going to you know that's kind of the integration which sometimes is it sounds so simple when you say it it's actually quite difficult to do when you're reactive uh, in you know working in the business um just on a slight side note uh one of the things that uh one of the podcasts that I did and one of the interests I've got is um Sean's uh, women's financial um, expectation and the work she's done around the different pivotal points within your life where you can make a decision that will impact the, the sort of your financial um, freedom or independence or, or circumstances later on in life. Yeah, we work um, very, very closely with uh, Sean. Um, you're right, Sean has taken the lead on, on a number of the, those issues. Um, the issue where we've taken more of the lead is in the mental well-being space, uh, where we identified quite a while ago that there was a, a developing issue. We put our own staff through mental health first aid training on a voluntary basis, and a third of the Beaver staff put their hands up and said, yes, I'd like that, myself included. Uh, we also provided that mental health first aid training at a heavily, heavily subsidised cost around our regions in the 
in late 2019 and in the first couple of weeks of 2020 and got some got some fabulous feedback. Um, we use a firm called Mental Health in Business, and it's Claire Russell's business. I think Claire's very well known in the in the space now. Um, yeah. She's a speaker at our our Manchester regional dinner in February 2020. It's not the last physical event we did before lockdown, and uh, uniquely at a regional dinner, she got a standing ovation at the end for her after dinner speech, which is uh, um, that's incredible. Something else. She was she was also a a, a seminar speaker at our 2021 conference back in back in May. So a, a really a really topical subject. We get a huge amount of website activity on anything we post in the mental well-being space. Um, but to go back to your your, your question um, around the uh, some of the DNI activity that that, that, that Sean is doing, uh, yeah, we, we we support it. We follow it. We 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 signpost our members to it. Um, we get. Uh, Quite a few questions on the subject, and I'll re repeat a line that I used um, after Claire's piece at a conference. We get we get a few people say, you know, "I I get the, the the diversity bit, but what's what does the inclusion bit mean?" And one of our younger brokers used a perfect analogy to to summarise the difference in that uh, diversity is being invited to the party, but inclusion is being asked to dance. Once you once you once you get that into your head, it's clear. Yeah, I think that's a really good analogy. Um, it's really interesting uh, what you're saying about uh, sort of DNI, but also uh, mental health well-being that that sort of all part of a larger um, a larger group. And Claire's done some TED talks, hasn't she? And I think she's a fabulous speaker. Um, and total side note but one of the things that we did in June last year with the CII was some mental health webinars um, and we called them Coffee Calm and Connection and it was uh, myself and a, um, a mental health practitioner and we did a little bit of sort of psychoeducation around a topic it might be burnout it might be anxiety it might be um, stress it might be uh, loneliness um, and we did a, a few sort of short meditations and some psychoeducation around it. And it, it went down really, really well. Um, we got some fabulous feedback and we did it every Friday through June. Um, and one of the things that happened during one of those webinars, there was somebody on it. And we broke off into some small group chats as well for a bit of sort of social uh, uh, in, uh, interaction. And there was, a, there was a lady on it and I happened to be in her small group. And she was so... Um, so grateful to have an opportunity to talk to people and she was close to tears and she said through the lockdown she's been on her own living in chronic pain with various um, sort of physical uh, disability not a lot of support from the employer and and she was the gratitude at having someone to talk to was a little bit overwhelming and I said to Zoe who, who we did these um, sessions with you know, let's do them throughout June. And then the CII asked us to do them from September through to October. And we're actually in the process now of developing an app that takes this, uh, the Coffee Calm Connection principle and puts it into short five minute boosts for busy professionals with a community which um, supports, uh, which supports people. Uh, and we're talking to the CII about it in terms of piloting it in the la latter half of this year so that we can get we can get the content really spot on. So Claire is actually on my um, my hit list to see if she'll do a podcast with me because I, I, I watch a lot of her stuff and I think she's a really inspirational um, individual. 
so it's interesting you know how how she's managed to um how she's managed to sort of build mental health in business and i think she's a, a really phenomenal woman yeah i wouldn't disagree with any of that it's a subject that got no airtime five years ago but we all have we all have physical health and we all have mental health we can be we can be physically well or physically unwell we can be mentally well or mentally unwell we need we do need to think of them collectively and i, I think that that is has has definitely not just started to happen but is it is now happening and one it, of the, sorry sir go on i was just going to say one of the things that particularly impressed me about um claire and one of the really powerful things that I want for Coffee Calm Connection is this idea of ownership because I do think the mental health movement has quite a lot of um, assumed victimization with it and I think there needs to be both an understanding and empathy towards uh, mental health as there does with physical health but also this idea that so what can you do now what you know put it back in your control what can what can I do to help but what can you do to help to move from where you are now to this place as you would with a broken leg you know or a a cold it might be you need to go to bed for three days you might need to take some paracetamol whatever it might be so um some of the stuff that that Claire talks about is is that ownership and I, I really like that yeah I mean it's, it's patently obvious if you've got a broken leg to all who are looking at you that you have um you're not as physically well as you could be, but it's not quite so obvious in, in, the, men, in the mental health place. And, it's a, and that of itself is an issue for us as employers in that we have obligations under health and safety legislation for the, the well-being of our staff wherever they're working. And if you've got staff at home that you haven't seen for months and months, how do, how, how do you know they're getting on with regards to the, their, their mental well-being? So it, it, it's causing um, the subject to raise right up almost to the top of the radar for a lot of employers now, which is, and I, re I repeat, everything we put on the website with regards to the subject gets a huge amount of traffic. So it's clearly mm. very top. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's a, a definitely um, sort of a worldwide agenda, particularly at the moment. And it's great to see um, it becoming the top of agenda with, you know, organisations like yourselves, uh, which filters through to an entire industry in the, in, in the UK, which I think is absolutely phenomenal. Um, on the uh, sort of, I, I know I'm... I've taken up uh, quite a bit of your time this morning, but I've really enjoyed chatting to you. I wonder if we can finish with just maybe your um, advice on uh, on what's coming and what, if you are an independent broker, um, aside obviously from A, joining Bieber if you're not a member and B, engaging with Bieber in every way you can if you are, uh, what your advice to the broking community is? I think... I think the main top areas of advice are probably where we where we've already been with this conversation. It's keep listening to your customers. Make 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 sure you are understanding what it is that they are wanting. Make sure you're understanding what uh, you're providing for them, and try and make sure that the customers understand what it is that they have that, that they that they have uh, entered into. And in terms of Bieber, yeah, come on board. And the trade association is only as good and as strong as the quality and quantity of engagement that we get from our members. We have over 1,800 corporate entities now that are with our, our Bieber members. The more that we have, the, the stronger our voice is with government, with the regulator, with the, with the broader stakeholders. Um, and as we said, don't just join, join in, get yourself involved. There's lots and lots of different touch points within Bieber that you can, that you can get involved with and benefit from. And if you benefit from it, we benefit from it and we collectively benefit from it. 
I think uh, that's really, really great note to end on. Uh, it will be a fabulous clip. And uh, I'd like to thank you very much for your time, Steve. My pleasure, Sarah. Thanks again for the invite. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you have enjoyed what you have heard, have any questions or feedback, please leave us a review and we will be sure to get back to you. If you would like further information on how Boston Tullis Group can support your business, or if you would like to join us on an episode, please do not hesitate to contact us.